Welcome back to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast, the Fred Harrison series. My name is Jonathan Brown. Now, in the previous two podcasts, we've looked at Fred's earlier work, starting with the classic Power in the Land, and then the stunning Corruption of Economics, written with the late, great Mason Gaffney. What we then did in podcast two was to look at the vision of a society that's run on ethical economic grounds that applies the theories popularised in the English-speaking world by Henry George. Now, in this podcast, we're going to explore the development of Fred's career as he transitions from an economist who works as a journalist to an economist advocating and campaigning for societal transformation through land and tax reform. And we, bring in, we begin this journey with Fred heading to the former USSR as it transitions to a market economy. And we then return to the UK and the Blair government, who at the time, in 1997, were claiming to want to have something called the third way of economics. Now, given that we all know how that went and that the 2007 to 2008 crash happened as a result of them ignoring Fred's advice, um, what we're then going to look at is, given his lack of success influencing the politicians, we explore what he did next with his research and his campaigning. Then in 1990, uh, the Communist Party in Russia capitulated. Communism came to an end, the USSR collapsed, and I thought, well, now is the opportunity to apply the uh, economic theory in a society that was starting from scratch, which would uh, hopefully be rational enough to rebase their economy on the principles of justice which would have been easy to do in Russia because all the land and natural resources were already in the public domain. Nobody would have been upset if uh, uh, Boris Yeltsin, as Prime Minister, had said, we're keeping these assets in the public domain and all you do is pay the rent for them, but we won't be taxing your wages and when you create new enterprises and sell on the world markets, we won't be taxing your profits because the revenue is coming just from the rents. This made eminent sense, except that um, the Western governments, the US and the UK and even Brussels, sent their diplomats and their professors to tell the Russian government that they ought to privatize all these assets. And they had the ear of Boris Yeltsin, and he was also being pushed by people who wanted to get rich quick, which is how they came to buy the state assets at knockdown prices, and the emergence was the oligarchy. Well, after 10 years of uh, my colleagues from around the world working in Russia for no reward except the satisfaction of participating in what could have been a historic development, a whole nation rationally basing its economy on the principles of justice. After 10 years, I could see it wasn't working. This was a tragedy because a lot of people who were uh, professionals, both uh, academics and in the property industry, who advocated the need to retain the rents of the natural resources in the public domain, they had come from all over the world to give their services free to Russia. They came from the west coast of America to the east coast of Australia. 
from the northern part of Europe to the southern part of Africa, we all converged as volunteers on uh, Russia to help the Russian government get it right. But no, we couldn't compete with the uh, blandishments from Western governments, which just wanted the bog standard capitalist model put in place in Russia. So what were the other forces that you saw came in and, and corrupted that process? It was in the interests of the West not to have an alternative model emerge in Russia that would reveal the flaws in the capitalist model. Uh, what uh, the West had to do in order to sustain the, the standard capitalist model of economics was persuade Russia to just simply create a carbon copy. So the professors that went over there, like Jeffrey Sachs, uh, an eminent professor now uh, with the uh, achievements of being advisor to the UN and so on, they proposed shock therapy. Just sell the public assets, uh, create a market economy of the kind that existed in the West, and this was supposed to be the solution for the post-Soviet Russia. Uh, well, that's what in the end happened, except that because it was all done in a rush, uh, it created not an aristocratic class of landowners, it created a mafia uh, uh, body of individuals, the oligarchs, who acquired these vast resources, made them hugely rich in double-quick time, using methods that included murder in order to eliminate the competition. And the result is a rogue state now. And we're paying the price with uh, the Putin government, uh, seeing that the only way it can sustain itself is by interfering in other countries' affairs, which is what uh, the Russian government has been doing with the elections in the West, both in America and in Europe. Uh, so we created this creature uh, just in order to avoid something uh, more wholesome emerging in the ashes of the Soviet Union. We had uh, some remarkable successes in Russia in terms of uh, people agreeing with what we were proposing, that we, we worked as with one of our partners, was the most senior academician, economist, Dmitry Lavov. He headed the Russian Academy of Sciences Economics Department, and he was one of our co-workers. So we were credible. We presented the evidence in the Duma, the federal government. We held seminars. We did pilot studies. We even had Kenneth Jupp, Sir Kenneth Jupp, a uh, judge of the English High Court, as one of our um, uh, partners in uh, explaining to Russia the integrity of the model that we were uh, uh, proposing. So it wasn't that ours was a, a failure in terms of explaining the virtues of a certain uh, system of property rights and uh, income distribution. It was just that 
the Western governments managed to uh, create the conditions whereby in order to speed up the process of change, the Yeltsin government uh, alienated uh, the state assets by offering them at knockdown prices to a few people, who, many of whom were gangsters, uh, who became eminently rich, took their money out of Russia, bought their yachts and villas uh, in the south of France, leaving behind uh, essentially devastation. The, de the, the death rate of middle-aged, middle-class men collapsed in the 1990s. Uh, there was utter despair because there was no hope, uh, because the rush to create whatever would follow from the alienation of the state's assets in a uh, free-for-all scramble was psychologically devastating. Still convinced that he could persuade politicians to create a fairer system, Fred engaged with the Blair government. In 1997, I approached uh, the Blair government, which was claiming to want to chart a third way. And I explained that the evidence was such that we could time the end of that business cycle as being 2010 on the grounds that house prices would peak in 2007, they would decline in 2008, there would be a banking crisis and uh, a depression would follow. So the Blair government had 10 years in which to make, uh, study the proposition to start with, lay the foundations for uh, educating the people of Britain on the need to begin to shift the way we approached uh, economic behaviour, the huge rewards that would arise from the change that was being pro proposed, and then to put in place the reform that would prevent house prices peaking in a manner that would collapse into what would be a bad recession. Gordon Brown was the Chancellor, who then became the Prime Minister, did absolutely nothing except in Parliament he would keep saying to the MPs, there will be no more booms and busts. But he took no steps to prevent uh, the crash that occurred. I had not only written to Blair and Brown and Alistair Darling, who was to become the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, and others in Downing Street, I published the prediction in uh, a book called The Chaos Makers in 1997. So there is no excuse for not only the government, but academics not realizing that here was a robust theory that could guide uh, policy reform. They took no notice. And so 2008 and the banking crisis and 10 years of austerity followed all the way up to the present time. So it was with that history of seeing politicians taking no notice of reality, the facts, that caused me to think that people like me were making a mistake, that it wasn't sufficient to go to an MP and explain the virtues of a, a tax reform. They had, to they had to understand what the implications were for their constituents and the fabric of their communities that they represented. And that needed a broader description of the impact of tax reform 
And so, yes, uh, in my uh, later books, I did embark on sociology and this, uh, behavioral uh, psychology and the other disciplines which illuminate the uh, nature of our society constructed on what is a, a grotesque unfairness, which is that we penalize people who work for their living and we transfer a huge chunk of the national income to people who don't earn it, who don't work for it. It's called rent-seeking. The political problem, of course, is that many people who work, like me, also benefit from this rent-seeking culture because we own a bit of land under our houses, which means that we can capitalize on this social injustice. And for a politician, that becomes a problem. It means that uh, if they advocate a policy that apparently begins to undermine the unearned capital gains that accrue to homeowners, bear in mind that something like 70% of the, uh, the population in Britain own their homes and therefore benefit from this culture, uh, there are electoral consequences. And the only way to deal with that is for a national conversation that explains that actually everybody gets better off by the change. But to do that, I had to embark on writing the other works that Shepherd Warwin published. Um, over those um, years since 1983, uh, the books that Shepherd Warwin published did not make substantial profits for the publisher, but we had in Anthony Werner a man of integrity, a publisher who understood that it was a public service to publish the books that uh, would not be popularly received, but which needed to be available to people who wanted to understand the underlying reality of how our society works. So he never questioned that when I turned up with a new book, he published it. And I was very grateful to him for that commitment. Uh, he, it was a, an honorable history, uh, publishing books that other publishers wouldn't touch just because they wouldn't be able to make uh, substantial profits out of them. And that's what's unique about the Shepherd Wolverine catalogue. Over the decades, they have assembled a body of works uh, which is unique. Uh, today, anybody who wants to begin to understand the reality of how the economy and society works can get most of the information from one catalogue, one website, which is Shepherd Walwins. Well, that's phenomenal. In recent years, I've been studying the works of other authors, the distinguished professors from Harvard and Oxford, who received the attention in Financial Times and uh, the other journals, looking for if they had any understanding of the reality of this society that is constructed, was constructed from the beginning, historically, on the basis of an injustice and whether they understood that there was this primary need to 
change the financial system in favour of economic efficiency and justice. And almost no works of any of these public, uh, published authors contains even a hint of the kind of change that needs to be uh, implemented in order to get out of the trap that our society is in. And so I uh, realized that we couldn't rely on the mainstream publishers or the media. Uh, there were honorable exceptions like Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel laureate, yes. Uh, and occasionally the Financial Times acknowledges the need to change the tax regime in favor of raising more revenue from the rents that people generate. But these are scattered references and insufficient to persuade the policymakers that here was a topic that they needed to grapple with, to incur the disfavor of their constituents uh, while they began to explain the need for a qualitative change in the fabric of our society, one that would improve life for everybody. Uh, so, the mission has to now be to help people to, to grapple with these fundamental issues which are really basically rather simple once you grasp the nettle that uh, the, the, the distribution of income uh, is based on an indefensible uh, principle which is that we all work together and besides producing our wages and the profits from our capital investments, we also generate a net income. I don't call it a surplus because it's not a surplus. We produce a net income for a purpose. That purpose is to fund the fabric of society. We, and we are part of that fabric as human beings. We work jointly, cooperatively, to produce that extra flow of revenue that belongs to all of us through society. But that was captured historically, going back 500 years, systematically privatized and for a privileged minority. And here we are uh, with things like inequality, uh, mental ill health, uh, regional uh, gaps between the rich and the poor embedded into the system purely because of the success of those earliest rent seekers we're talking about the nobility who started this process uh, succeeding in capturing a flow of income that really belonged to all of us and uh, we are living with the consequences and until we uh, eradicate that injustice there can be no improvement in people's lives uh, on a sustained basis. Fred now faced a difficult choice. He'd failed to influence policy and he'd failed there, and yet he had also pulled together the theories that allowed someone to predict future market peaks and crashes more accurately than anyone else on the planet. So in an attempt to reach the people, Fred took his research to a much deeper level and set out to look at what are the, the deeper causes and cures of our economic and social problems. And this has led to all his later works that whilst having economic rigour, have a much stronger focus on social justice. And in this passage, we find out why that was.
So uh, uh, after 10 years, I realized that we weren't succeeding and that there had to be uh, some shortcoming in the way we were presenting our case. I wasn't taking all the blame for it, uh, but we needed to start looking deeper into how we explain the virtues of this reform in order to engage the moral sensibilities of our audiences. And so I started embarking on uh, deeper research, uh, culminating in the, the traumatized society, because I realized that when the land was uh, enclosed, and this began in the, in the 16th century in the UK, the impact on the people who were dispossessed was absolutely profound. So this is where I needed to study uh, the, the psychology and the evolutionary uh, consequences of people who were uh, intimately related to their natural environments being ruptured away from those environments. What would be the consequences of such terrible deeds? And they, they penetrate deep into people's souls because people aren't detached from the natural environment or their communities from which they were ejected once the land was enclosed. Uh, the integration of body and soul is so intimate that there would be uh, a pathological consequence from privatizing the commons. And once you start to view the problem in those terms and trace the evolution of British society, for instance, but this applies to all societies, you begin to understand that the con our contemporary problems are all rooted in this common uh, original injustice. So, for example, people who are uh, dispossessed of the means of their livelihoods or who are living right at the margins of existence, they're the ones who lose 10 years of their life. Today, in Britain, up north, babies born today will die, uh, on average, 10 or 12 years earlier than babies born in the rich parts of London. And that's built into their uh, life prospects. That's not justice, that's not fair, that's not normal, but it's the way it is, but we have to explain why it's so. Why aren't people up north in Britain still rioting in outrage at this, this tragedy that their babies will die on average 12 years earlier than they need, and yet nothing. So I had to explain why. Why were people quiescent? Why were they accepting this? That meant looking into the way in which uh, the collective consciousness was shaped by the original land grabbers who had to take control of people's minds and the narrative, the way we talk about the nature of our world, in order to keep control of, of their uh, uh, stealing the social revenue, the rents uh, that we all help to produce. So today we actually have been co-opted, we conspire in this injustice. We 
encourage our children to get on the property ladder. Well, that is telling them to become part of the problem. But we don't see it like that. We think it's a good idea. It makes sense. It's uh, a rational thing to do. Get your share of the unearned capital gains uh, that accrue to whoever owns a bit of land. Uh, understanding how that happened historically is part of uh, what has to become a national conversation. We need a catharsis, a collective catharsis. That can only happen if people actively participate in a conversation where all the information becomes available uh, and uh, people end up consenting to the change that needs to be introduced. And this is where uh, the Shepherd Walwyn books are so vital because if people need to look up the detail uh, of that history and of the economics uh, that are involved, they can pretty well get most of that from one source, uh, a reliable source. And that's why I'm so indebted to Shepherd Walwyn as a publisher because they were willing to accumulate this body of works from all over the world uh, that concentrated on how to rectify what is the primary injustice in our society. And with those works, we, if a nation chose to embark on a conversation about where do we go from here, uh, then they can get the information instantly by going to the Shepherd Walwyn website. Uh, we are now at that point. We've had a pandemic. It's a global one. Humanity has been united by a common a mortal tragedy. And people are, by and large, saying, we don't really want to go back to business as usual. Okay, so where do we go from here? Well, the professors and the newspapers all seem to agree that we should try and find a better way, that we shouldn't just think about going back to the way things were, but they don't specify what it would take to transform uh, future prospects. And so this opportunity, as with what happened with the 2008 financial crisis, will be wasted. 2008, banks uh, went bankrupt. They didn't know how to rebase the system, so they imposed the costs on the population at large with austerity and hoped that that would see us through that crisis. It will be the same again this time. Uh, instead of responding to the felt need to try and create something better than what we've had in the past, the politicians will end up making promises about levelling up. But they don't know how to level up. They make these wild uh, uh, projections about if they spend a lot of money on infrastructure in the north of England or in the rust belts of uh, America, that somehow low-income people's standard of living will rise. Well, it won't. All that will happen is that the land values will go up and that those values will be grabbed by a small proportion of the population. There will be no levelling up from now on under the current model 
of economics. And the only way to find, uh, to be able to chart a new course is to return to the books that sprang up as a result of the original Progress and Poverty publication uh, by Henry George and to trace out the detail of how people's behavior, attitudes, uh, human sentiments would be enriched by uh, the transition away from the present system of income distribution to the one that's based on freeing people to work without penalizing them with taxes, but asking them to please pool in the public purse the rents which you owe for the benefits that you're receiving from society and from nature uh, and uh, enjoy your life. And then children, instead of being born with the knowledge that they will die 12 years earlier than they should, will now lead full lives up in uh, Hartlepool and uh, the other deprived regions like Blackpool uh, and uh, will be on a level playing field along with uh, children born in uh, Chelsea and Kensington in London. Our culture is shaped to inhibit people from facing reality. So take the case of uh, Boris Johnson saying they're going to spend a lot of money on infrastructure up north to level the gap between the northern uh, national income, uh, the northern income and the average income in the south. They're going to spend money on uh, new transport systems and so on, which will create jobs and cut costs by making it more efficient to move goods around. That is correct. It will do that. But in cutting costs, what happens then? That's where the analysis stops. But if they then say, well, no, let's think further. What happens? We cut the costs of production. We increase mobility. Lo and behold, house prices start to go up. And that means more people are excluded from the housing market. Because now, where formerly they might just have afforded to buy a house, they can't now because things are zinging along, but the net gain from all this economic activity is being soaked away by government or by uh, the people who own the assets that uh, attract the rent. So that goes out of the local communities and they're no better off. That is the reality that is never discussed. The dead weight of taxes, the burden imposed on people who not only pay mortgages or rents and then have to pay taxes out of their wages is devastating. It, it causes the stresses, the, the uh, pressures that leave people to turn to alcohol or drugs. Uh, it causes the mental ill health uh, that people can't identify the source of because it's never discussed, these pressures that, that come from below. So Boris Johnson thinks that on the face of it, he's a great hero by promising to spend money up north 
on infrastructure, he just doesn't get told or doesn't want to know that the consequence of that will be more people being enriched uh, who have had to already own the land uh, or the government will intervene with taxes to penalise the people who are now uh, getting jobs up north so that they're no better off in the end than they were before. Uh, that's one of the aspects that lead to deceitful policies like we have in the European Union. They think that the mo free movement of people is a virtue and they want to defend that. And they talk about it as being part of the open society, the open economy, which Britain has abandoned. But this uh, free movement of people was just a device to, uh, so that they didn't have to come to terms with the reality. The reality is that people are pushed out of the regional economies because they can't make a living there because all of the rents are being sucked into the centre. So people lose the right to remain in their communities for reasons that nobody's talking about. Uh, and so they have to up stakes and move to live in Paris or London or uh, Brussels or uh, Berlin. They would rather have remained in southern Italy or in Eastern Europe or in parts of Greece or southern Spain, but they just can't make a living out of it. They can't uh, start their families there. So they move, but they are being pushed out, sucked out by something that nobody sees. And yet this is lauded as the free movement of people, as if it's a virtue. But actually it's a disgraceful way to camouflage uh, the injustice that's being imposed on people where the rents are sucked out of their communities uh, to enrich a few in the centre uh, uh, that then creates the havoc uh, both in the communities that have lost their children who've grown up and moved out and have created havoc in the dense uh, parts of Europe, London, Paris and so on where people congregate in slums because they're still on the lowest wages. Uh, and so injustice pervades the whole system. And yet it's treated as if it's a virtue, the free movement of people. Thank you for listening to this podcast and we hope you've enjoyed it. In the next and final chapter, Fred's cast his gaze ahead and considers the three main challenges facing the UK in 2021. Um, the pandemic and Brexit and what we do now, how economies or communities can handle the challenge of online retail and online media, and then perhaps the most important economic agent in this cycle, China. What's going to happen there and what can we do about it?